Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Jane's World of Intelligence. Sean, as always, is my co-host. Hello, Sean. Good morning, Harry. And I'm Harry Kemsley. So, Sean, we recently did a podcast. In fact, we've done three podcasts now on the terrible situation we've seen in Israel and Gaza, among which, of course, the situation that has escalated out of that into Yemen came into the conversation. So I thought it'd be helpful today for us to just examine Yemen. I don't think it's a country that many people really knew much about until it became newsworthy for reasons we can look at. So let's have a look at that. Um, and I'm delighted to invite and have join us James Trigg. Hello, James. Hi, good morning, Harry. Uh, I'm James Trigg. I'm a senior research analyst with the Middle East and North Africa team uh, here at James. Perfect. Thank you, James. So, James, um, as I said in my introduction very briefly, one of the things that many people won't understand about Yemen is why we should care about Yemen, and not just because of the attacks on shipping in the local area of Yemen, but you know, what is it about Yemen that causes us to need to understand more about Yemen? What's the background? What's the, what are the challenges of that part of the world? Thanks. That's a great question. And the situation in Yemen is an incredibly complex mosaic of other voices. One of the main reasons for its kind of continuing relevance is because of the scale of the humanitarian crisis that's unveiling across the country because of now over a decade uh, of conflict, which has drawn in not just Yemeni actors, but also Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Yemeni's Al-Qaeda affiliate is also heavily involved, uh, and even a, a minor Islamic State branch. So there's a number of different reasons why different actors either need to be involved in Yemen or uh, have become interested in Yemen even before the start of the attacks on shipping in November 2023. So it sounds like a real melting pot. It sounds like a huge amount of uh, actors operating in there. Is there anything about what we're now seeing in the main line press, the shipping. Is there anything about the history of Yemen that gives you a sense of that's what we would have expected? Is there anything about the connection between what you've just described as this melting pot of state and non-state actors and what we're seeing in the shipping lanes nearby? Particularly with regards to uh, Ansar Allah, also known as the Houthis, this is not the first uh, round of attacks that they've launched on Red Sea shipping. In 2016, they launched an unmanned surface vessel out into the Red Sea, which struck a Saudi Arabian frigate and killed two sailors, I believe. Right. So this is this is not necessarily as brand new a phenomenon as uh, perhaps the media may portray. Right. Um, but it certainly ties into the broader kind of narrative of the region, particularly in terms of the vulnerability of sea lanes. Uh, and transit, yeah, ships transiting through those uh, particular waterways. Absolutely. So, Sean, from your background, um, how much attention do you, let's go back five years, how much attention do you think Yemen would have been getting during that, would, would that then still be with the Saudi uh, ongoing conflict at that time? How much? Yeah, to an extent, yeah, that's true. I think we looked at Yemen uh, very much from a counter-terrorist lens for a long time. Counter-terrorism. Uh, indeed, yeah. So, you know, as has been mentioned, uh, AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, that kind of cross-fertilizes with organizations like Al-Shabaab, but also further in there. But that's only one element, of course. Um, it, it is incredibly pomp complex. So from a counter-terrorist perspective, always humanitarian, exactly as James said, 
But it depends on how far you want to go back. Mm. I mean, Yemen is is a very, very interesting place. And it goes back to, I mean, culturally, it used to be very, very important. And and here's where you see, without simplifying it, there is another, yet another schism between the Shia and the Sunni, Sunni domination. So everyone thinks about the Houthi as, you know, the, the, the new rebels or the rest of it. But if you go back to um, thousands of years, literally, mm. they're part of what we know, the, 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 the Zaidi Shia clan. And they governed... Um, Yemen for, as I say, thousand years up to 1962, and then it, it kind of unraveled a little bit there. But there's so many different factions, and it's back to, I'll try not to use the condation word, which I just did, but to what extent is Yemen now a, a, a proxy for all the other stuff going out, the Saudi versus Iran piece? To an extent, that is absolutely true, but there are many, many other actors as well. Um, and to what extent is that chicken and egg situation where... You know, because there is this schism, because there is uh, internal conflict and, you know, total breakdown in some respects, anyway, of law and order, is there opportunity, therefore, for the Saudis and the um, and, and the Iranians? I mean, the Saudis would say, hang on a minute, you know, we, we've been attacked by, you know, the Houthis and, and other groups, actually, from within Yemen for a long time, with the ballistic missiles coming over, and, and actually the UAE as well, actually, were, were attacked, but um, maybe inadvertently, I'm not sure. Um, so how much is it defensive? How much is it, it to pursue their interests? So again, this is back down to contextual understanding. Mm. And, you know, just, just a fun fact, if you like, the commercialization of coffee originated um, within Yemen. So Mocha, which is a type of coffee, actually was a was a port facility where a lot of the coffee came from. And again, without boring the audience to tears. So, so the originator of actual coffee came from Ethiopia, but very quickly went through to Yemen. So, so, uh, and that's where it's commercialized. So there is a, a real cultural richness. So if you're looking at it in isolation now, you think it is, um, and forgive my vernacular, but, you know, a basket case. And, you know, there are lots of, sadly, you know, the humanitarian crisis is awful there. But it wasn't always like that. Mm -hmm. It's quite an agricultural region. There's lots of raw materials and natural. Um, so oil is, although it's not one of the major producing, but it's certainly self-sustainable with oil. So the potential for it to be a, you know, not one of the poorest states in the world is great, but it just hasn't manifested yeah. recently. Yeah. James, let's come into um, then looking at this, um, to use Sean's vernacular a second time, the basket case that is Yemen. I think, I think if I was to stop a person in the street and ask them to talk to me about Yemen, they'd probably ask the question, where's that? What is that? And I think that's probably because it's, whether it's been because it has had little or no infrastructure development, whether it's an economic basket, whatever it is, it doesn't feel like a country that's been in the mainline press very much at all until the recent decade or so. Therefore, it feels like a relatively difficult challenge to penetrate from an open source perspective anyway. So how do you do that? How do you get inside when it's a relatively closed or apparently closed environment that is also so complex inside? For me, the main uh, strategy is simply immersion. It's reach out and find as many sources as I can that are talking about the, con the conflict or the situation. Right. Whether those are aligned with a particular faction or whether those are more general reporting, it's just a case of taking the time and the effort to really deep dive into it. And I know that you know, even in my own experience, I've likely only scratched the surface. Once I've conducted that deep dive, then it's a case of, well, okay, I have all of these sources, but now I need to validate them. I need to corroborate them, triangulate, uh, whatever word you wish to use. 
So it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean I exclude a source, right. but I'll give them an appropriate weighting. So if an event happens, uh, you know, say there's an attack claimed, now I will go to the primary source that makes that claim, and I'll go, you they have given me these details. Now I'll look at sources that are aligned with the alleged victim. They are reporting a similar situation, but maybe the fatalities are different or the mm. uh, details. And eventually it becomes a case of kind of you know, um, distilling these varied sources down into the maybe only a sliver of what I believe is actually something I can substantiate and yes. base uh, an outlook or an analysis on. Right. So, Sean, here's your opportunity. Every podcast has to have a discussion about tradecraft. That sounds to me like intelligence tradecraft. It really does. And that's music to my ear. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, my nirvana is all source intelligence. Of course it is. Um, but you've got to use all the sources. And, and what, what I really liked about what James said there is, is the validation piece. Uh, and you can only validate up to a point, A, with all the sources, but also understanding who is saying what. So it's the intent to influence as well as inform. So you might have a same, say the same tactical event. And if, you know, if one side are reporting on it and maybe this is the best thing ever and actually, you know, this is in response to people doing bad things. On the other side, maybe this is an atrocity. Mm. So unless you've got that background, that understanding and understand the where your sources are coming from um, and, and you might talk about the the scale of sourcing as well. So we talk about crowd crowdsourcing quite often. So if you're looking at social media, for example, you can tend to, after a while, to get a really good indication of something, whether it's true, just by the sheer number of people that are reporting on it, even if it's from their perspective. So if it's a tactical event, like, you know, a, a, a ballistic missile is just dropped on somewhere, you can very quickly get to the point of, did that actually drop on somewhere? And if so, what was that somewhere? And what was the damage done? Um, literally by, you know, by the, the eyewitnesses. Now, Yemen is quite interesting and, and quite difficult because it, it doesn't have the same electronic environment. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, but, you know, yes, everyone has cell phones, but very few people have the Internet, for example. Right. Um, how many people are reporting on what's happened? And that's where the, the expertise comes in to be able to get that massive reporting, step back and go, OK, on the balance of probabilities, judging by the validation and, and, and you know, the cross cross sourcing. This is this is what we think has happened. Okay, so the scale of reporting is something that you've alluded to, Sean, and something you said, James, in terms of the tradecraft is from that scale, distill that down to a much smaller set of sources you can rely upon, and from that foundation start to build out your insights. Is there anything you can give us in terms of an example, though, of in Yemen, an event that you were able to determine was or wasn't actually as described by whatever source you looked at because of the fact you had a very sound set of sources that you could rely upon. Is there any way you could exemplify that and an example that you can think of? I think the one example that leaps to mind um, is a recent attack that was claimed by the Houthis on a, a vessel uh, in January this year. Now, it's notable because we also corroborate Houthis claims with press releases by US CENTCOM and Naval Command. Mm -hmm. And the uh, US CENTCOM statement make reference to ballistic missile, an anti-ship ballistic missile having struck this vessel. That vessel, the Zagravia, pictures were later published of her in uh, the Suez Canal receiving repair work. Details were taken of the, the damage that was shown. And uh, there was a, a piece of analysis done that said 
the phrase anti-ship ballistic missile is perhaps rather misleading given the character of the damage and the, the fact the vessel was able to continue on her voyage. Right. A cruise missile was perhaps more likely. But that was only you know, possible because Ansar Allah had said they'd struck it with suitable missiles. US CENTCOM had gone into this habit of saying anti-ship ballistic missile, but it was only when I distilled those together and corroborated that with other sources uh, that we were able to go, actually, the wording may be misleading. This is what we think was far more likely the uh, responsible weapon. I think, I think it's an excellent example. It's a great example. And I think it's also, um, perhaps, Sean, another example. We've seen many, but it's another one of those moments where you think that's why open source is important. Yeah, indeed. I'll be interested to see whether CENTCOM then uh, revalidated and said, oh, actually, we think it's this, or whether they just moved on. Because, you know, one of my mantras is always the first report is generally wrong for good reasons, because you don't simply don't have all of that material. And, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's really different from, you know, seeing seeing something on a screen to actually being able to physically assess, you know, the hole and all the damage and all the rest of it, which is so much more information there to provide on. So, you know, yes, there was an attack, which is, yeah, I guess that's the tactically important thing. You've got to get that out there because it's really important, you know, uh, in terms of the political messaging and, and also the threat assessments. But then retrospectively, you go back and say, OK, it, it may not have been this, it may not have been that. And we've seen that in so many scenarios recently where the first report wasn't quite right. Um, and so you've got to do back and do that analysis. And uh, exactly as you said, that's a great example. Yeah. Um, in a previous podcast, the word words proxy, proxy war kept coming up where you've got various states, maybe non-state actors as well, actually, um, using an environment, using certain situations as a proxy for their own national interests, their own national objectives. Yemen has often been associated with a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, for example. Um, I doubt it's as simple as that. Nothing is ever as simple as that. I've said at the very, very beginning. But I'm sure that's a key element to some of the dynamics we've seen in that country. What is your view of the Yemen situation being used as a proxy? And then from that question, or the answer to that question, let's look at how you've derived that insight from your own experience. So there is definitely an element of that in play. Uh, Ansar Allah and Iran clearly have some level of connection. We've seen that through the interception of weapon systems, you know, Iranian weapon systems bound for Yemen. I am sometimes a little cynical as to the depth of that relationship and i believe that it's important never to derive or deprive sorry a group like Ansala of all their agency mm -hmm. and state that they only act on behalf of a patron or a, a sponsor so and that comes down to uh again immersion reviewing their own statements their own propaganda compared to iranian statements yeah now one would expect that uh, there would be some dis, you know, some similarities. But likewise, Ansar Allah and their campaign against Red Sea shipping, for example, has continued despite calls on Iran uh, to pressure them to desist, despite US and UK airstrikes, because this is a group capable of their own agency and capable of launching their own uh, campaigns. Where I find gets particularly interesting in terms of proxies is also the internal situation between Saudi-backed forces opposed to Ansar Allah and United Arab Emirates forces opposed to Ansar Allah, who have been clashing in Yemen 
in turn to settle local power struggles for a number of years themselves. Mm. For example, the Yemeni government technically operates out of Aden. That city is controlled primarily by the Southern Transitional Council, which is a group aligned with the United Arab Emirates, and you know, not diametrically opposed, but resistant to the imposition of the Yemeni government's presence because the STC is seeking to re-secede the southern Yemen from the rest of the state. Mm -hmm. So there's a very, very interesting set of proxy conflicts happening. But again, the, the key takeaway is until anybody has the chance to immerse themselves in the sourcing, that position becomes very difficult to judge because there are lots of different titles for the same person flying around. There are lots of different abbreviations and there are lots of different dynamics at play. Yeah. Sean, I want to come to you on that point because you and I have talked in the past about within a default intelligence agency, you have a constant churn of people flowing through for good and, and bad reasons. Now, that doesn't give an analyst a great deal of time to simulate all the long-term insights that an analyst like James would have, how much of a reason is that for them to reach out and have a relationship, trusted relationship with commercial organizations that provide that sort of support because the longevity of the expertise? And that's kind of a leading question, isn't it? Because yes, of course, it's important, yeah. uh, you know, with, and within the intelligence community, we all, we all like to sort of say it's the intelligence community, but it's clearly many faceted. So you've got, you tend to have in the military side, people that move on quite quickly, partly for career reasons, partly just for structural reasons, mm -hmm. who will, you know, dip in and out maybe over a year, two years, whatever, into a certain subject. Um, but then you've got a, the, the strategic level, more, you tend to have more continuity in terms of what it's all about. But it goes back to what I think I mentioned earlier. How far back do you want to go on this? Mm -hmm. So James is absolutely right. You know, it, it, it's far too simply to say this is, Shia versus Sunni, because, you know, the, the, correct me if I'm wrong here, James, but the Zaydis here are a very distinct form of Shia from Iran, for instance. So, although you could say it's proxy, yet, yeah, well, it is, but it's not, it's not that total proxy, right, you right. know. Um, and then, and then you, know, you look at the tactical side where, you know, there is absolutely irrefutable evidence that arms transfers have been happening from Iran because they've been intercepted to, uh, to factions, not just the one faction within uh, within Yemen, you know, sometimes that the, that they take all the serial numbers off. You know, they, literally the filing of serial numbers. Sometimes it doesn't happen, so you actually see that evidence on the mm. battlefield. Mm. You know, whether that's images and, and all the rest that you you you, um, you look at. You know, sometimes it's not necessarily the Iranians. You mentioned the UAE, big player in in Yemen. You know, they may or may not be transferring arms as well. So you've got the proxies definitely, but you know, you've got to understand as well as the factions within Yemen. A lot of it is tribal. It's all about their power bases, etc. So it is that, and I know I'm not really answering your question here, but this is fun anyway uh, to think about it. Um, you know, you 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 you've got to have that, and the point is this really. The point is you've got to have that depth of understanding to realise that the nuances. Mm. It's very easy to say Shia versus Sunni, yeah, no no problem. Iran versus um, Saudi. Uh, Saudi, but it is not that simple. Yeah. And you can only understand that if you're looking at this over, you know years and decades even yeah for sure um i'm i'm keen to just tap into one further aspect of this you sort of alluded just to, to it in an earlier answer the command and control of the assets that have been deployed into yemen some of which have been now utilized against shipping in the area but not for the first time earlier there is this definite sense in the media that 
we just need to tell the Iranians to tell them to stop doing it, that somehow they are directly involved in the command and control. And I get the essence from what you said, Sean, and what you said, James, that is far from necessarily the case. But they may, the local factions that are using these weapons may well have their own ideas about what they want to do with these weapons and may or may not be heavily influenced. What's your view of this command and control aspect of these lethal capabilities in Yemen? That's one aspect that has been very, very difficult to kind of pin down uh, through open sources. Ansar Allah takes credit for its missile launches. They do not say, thanks to our Iranian brethren, we were able to launch these missiles. Right. So it's difficult to pinpoint exactly the depth of penetration yep. by, the, let's say, the Iranian Republican Guard Corps into Ansar Allah's hierarchy. There have been uh, notable kind of allusions, you know, Iran is the only nation that recognizes the Ansar Allah regime in uh, Yemen. But I think that's a very, very difficult question to answer yeah. without clear, a clearer understanding of the situation. And so for me, that, that's where I stop being able to say, and I stop definitively making comments to the point of Iran is commanding right. Ansar Allah's activities. Yeah. I limit myself to saying these are what Ansar Allah has claimed to do. And these, there are claims that Iran is influencing those activities, but you know, a correlation does not equal causation. Sure, sure, sure. All right, very good. Good answer. Thank you. Um, let's move on to um, what might well end up being the last group of conversation questions. I'm always looking from an intelligence perspective for the nirvana, which is predictive analytics, the ability to look into the future. Now, indicators and warnings of what might be the most likely future is something that we look at from an intelligence perspective all the time. What are you seeing in Yemen as indicators of where Yemen might be in a period of time in the future? You can measure that time in months or years, you decide. But what are the indicators that you're seeing? And by, by the way, how do you know those are indicators of anything? So principally, what I'm looking for are indicators of a return to full-blown conflict in Yemen. There was a ceasefire, UN-sponsored ceasefire between April and October 2022 that broke down. However, we've not returned to what I would say is full-blown mm -hmm. conflict at this point. However, especially since the uh, start of the conflict between Israel and Hamas on October 7th, there has been a significant uptick in Ansar Allah rhetoric regarding recruitment of fighters. There have been reports from anti-Ansar Allah elements that those fight or that large numbers of fighters are being redeployed to strategic points around the country, uh, such as the besieged city of Taiz and the government's last stronghold in the North Marib, which also controls significant oil resources. Those are the kind of indicators that, once again, I'm looking for but I have to take both sides with a pinch of salt sure. in terms of Ansar Allah's claiming they've recruited hundreds of thousands of fighters. The opposition is saying that they're seeing dozens of fighters moving into you know, positions. Distill that down, we get something approaching the truth. And for me, the biggest risk in Yemen is a return to all-out conflict. So those are the indicators and warning signs that I'm prioritizing as opposed to perhaps will this year have a particularly good wheat harvest in Yemen, because those indicators are important, but they're not the principal risk to the population and to the wider international community right. stemming from Yemen. Yeah, and um, those economic indicators 
from agriculture, do they have a potential knock-on effect to the stability of what is already an unstable environment? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, it ties in both the humanitarian crisis, but also the political one, because particularly in territory that uh, they've taken in northern Yemen, and Sa'ala has used control of access to resources as a way to uh, incentivize or mm -hmm. coerce the population into acts, or perhaps, yeah, if you if your son joins up, then we will provide gas, food, whatever it might be. So there's definitely uh, a direct link there between Yemen's condition in terms of agriculture and access to food and the conflict itself. Yeah, very good. So Sean, I'm I'm curious. What do you think is happening inside the agencies that you're familiar with about these various factors? How, how are they trying to deal with it? Because what we've heard from James is an extended look at fragments of information pieced together to form a picture, something we've said before. And I'm not entirely convinced, but you'll bear me out or disagree, that the agencies have got that endurance or that longevity in some of their analysts or analyst teams. I would say in this case, they probably have at the strategic level. You think they do? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, I do. There are some, some real experts in there um, that I've been looking for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, for all the reasons we said, you know, Yemen is quite pivotal just because of it. it you know, it's a litmus paper sure. for everything else that's happening there. So, and I think going back to the, the other question in terms of your indicators and warnings, yes, there's a tactical events that, 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 that James has, has very well uh, described, but I thought there's also the, the political narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll you'll detect that political narrative changes according to what's happening, you know, to an extent on the ground, but also what a particular political body, whether that is a, a country or non-state group thinking. But also there's a there's a cause and effect thing. And I, I always think about, you know, the, the attacks that are happening in the Red Sea right now. They've made a, a huge global impact because everyone is now, well, a lot of people are sort of not going through Suez Canal, but going round. So everything's sure. more expensive, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. How much of that was strategic intent by the Houthi to say that if we have if we attack a few ships, this is the impact, or the other way around? So right, you know, we need to show our support to to Hamas. Therefore, we'll, we'll bang off a few missiles and go. Hang on a minute, that was far more impact than we said. Right, we'll keep this going, and now we'll we'll make the narrative that we're there to to affect this because we're getting leverage that we didn't know that we were going to have. So how much of it is deliberate? you know, preconceived and how much of it is opportunism. I don't know the answer to that, but I suggest it's more the latter than the former, personally. Mm -hmm. um, so the political narrative narrative does matter, but it matters from a lot of different perspectives. Yeah. So whether that is from Saudi, whether that is from Iran, whether that's from the US even, um, because that gives you an indication of what people are thinking um, and, and as well as what they're doing. Yeah. I, I'm... Curious to know, James, and the answer, no, I don't know, is a perfectly good answer. <laughs> is there any sense from what you've seen about whether this is opportunistic or whether this was a strategic attempt, well thought through, planned? Anything you can say about that in terms of what you've seen from open sources? I certainly can't say for definite. What I could allude to is that, as I said in an earlier answer, this is not the first time that sure. Allah has taken action against shipping in the Red Sea. This is certainly the first time that Ansar Allah has taken action on this scale in the Red Sea. Right. And there, I think it leans into, uh, as Sean described, the first few attacks stunned you know, uh, the international community and certainly impacted you know, uh, thought processes by international shipping firms. And that has created a feedback loop of actually this is working and we should keep doing this because it is generating 
the the impact that we wanted. Yeah, that's the response you wanted. Yeah. Can you see this, Sean? Can you see this as becoming? I'm going to use your contagion word, a contagion that could spread further. So the Red Sea becomes a big problem. Other nations in that area that have similar problems in their own backyard taking some appropriate action that they think will generate the same outcome? Is that something you can see as a contagion? This is the big question. Um, to what extent, and I don't think we know the answer to this, to what extent is this almost a self-fulfilling prophecy? Mm. Because we talk about it, particularly in the West, as a narrative, and we touched on this in the previous podcast, but you know the 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 um contagions as you call it are, are we seeing that in terms of it actually fits a narrative it, it's it gets headlines or the rest of it or is this just a particular hotspot in a in a series of events that's been going on and off for for, for many years i mean you know the middle east as a whole you see hotspots um from time to time you know is it going to be contained ultimately i think it will die down just purely because of the the economics and the the will to continue at the higher level, mm. that the forces and the political dynamics will get exhausted. I mean, there's always going to be some sort of dialogue where you know it, it, where the the limit is reached. They go right now, we need to dial it down. Yeah. that's certainly my experience in the Middle East. I mean, are we there at a a, a, um, a high point yet? Probably not. I don't know, but I do detect that we we're coming to a point now of and and. You know, there's so many dependencies, but you know, if there is a ceasefire within Gaza, um, you know, that that's extended, that will dial everything down mm. tactically. But the strategic levers are still going to be going through all the time. So you're always going to be see, see peaks and troughs. I yeah. think this idea that um, I'll make it horrifically simplified that the media could stoke a narrative that said there was a crisis happening in the Red Sea, where in actual fact, from what I've seen from open sources the deployed navies are starting to get a bit of a handle on these attacks. The numbers of attacks that have been successful appears to be reducing. But that's certainly not the impression created in the media. So I mean, is this, James, one of those areas where open source can actually step in and verify the outlandish claims made by one side, the unnecessarily outlandish reporting done by the media from, quote, another side? Is there something where open source can step in and actually say, actually, ladies and gents, just be aware that there are civil attacks happening, but they are 50% less than they were two weeks ago. Is there something open source can do there to help balance the narrative? I think so, certainly, in terms of not only uh, being able to track these events over a long period, of, a longer period of time than, let's say, the mainstream media can. As the 24 so that you would see the peaks and troughs from history and know that this was just a peak that would probably dissipate. Precisely. And also by taking into account more a wider range of sources than, say, a journalist who needs to turn a piece around in the next right. four hours, yeah. we can see that, yes, these attacks may have dropped off, they may have relocated, but even before the, the imposition of Operation Prosperity Guardian, no ship had been sunk, no crew had been killed, one cargo container had fallen off a vessel. So yes, these attacks, you know, probably a terrifying experience for the crew on board these vessels. This is not the same as, you know, as unrestricted submarine warfare right. in the Second World War. Right. We are not losing thousands of sailors and thousands of tons of shipping. Yeah. So I think that's certainly where open source has its role to play as a, a moderating factor on the discussion of one side are making outlandish claims, the other side are denying anything ever happened. Mm -hmm. The truth is, or 
the more likely position is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, very good. All right. Well, as ever, time starts to evaporate on us. So I'll come to you in just a second, James, for your takeaway. What do you want the audience to take away about our discussion around Yemen in current context or more broadly? Uh, and Sean, the same for yourself. But maybe I'm going to ask you just to step in a little bit more on the tradecraft. What's the one piece about the tradecraft you've heard from today that we want to underscore? I have my own, by the way, and I'll go last, just in case you eat my sandwiches. I'll try have two. <laughs> so, James, what's the one thing that uh, you want the audience to hear in terms of your takeaway for the situation in Yemen? I think my biggest takeaway for anybody would be simply that it is a far more complex situation than individual sources will make it out to be. And it's also not a situation that can be detached from the domestic situation in Yemen, which mm -hmm. is still undergoing conflict. Uh, even if that conflict has died down. So I think that, for me, is the biggest lesson I'd like anyone to take away from this, is the complexity is there. The complexity can be understood with time and immersion, but it cannot be detached from the wider uh, narrative and the wider scheme of events. Perfect. Sure. Yeah, that is it, absolutely what James said. But it's for me, it's about that balance and objective approach objectivity is absolutely critical where you explore alternative hypotheses mm. and you aren't overawed by the narrative on either side you know so it's really important in this case is to is to counter the unimportant uninformed irresponsible uh, narrative by saying okay taking all of that away and saying right what are we seeing what do I know from context and having that objective, balanced approach? Yeah, I agree with both of those. And probably what I'll do is I'll sort of lean on both of them as my takeaway. To understand the complexity, to understand the nuances of what's happening on the ground and the potential implications of that for indicators for the future is to require a degree of balance and objectivity. But it also, I'm going to underscore your word immersion. If you haven't got that long-term insight and hindsight of this situation, very, very hard to understand what's happening today in any real context and not become one of those people that just misinterprets things constantly. You know, the surge in attacking on ships, attacks on ships in recent times, may actually, by comparison to previous attacks periods, be a very, very small event. But because you don't know it's happened before, you don't see it that way. You see it as a very large event. So for me, this immersion point you made, James, for me is the big takeaway from today. So, unless there's anything else, can I just say again, James, thank you very much for joining us, uh, shining a light on a country that is perhaps not well known as it should be or probably will become, certainly if the situation in that part of the world continues to escalate, I'm sure it will become. But thank you very much indeed for your time today. No, thank you very much. Thank you. Sean, thank you as always. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.